Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. Just launched on iFi at Home is the first volume of a two-part season, Japanese Story, featuring classic and contemporary Japanese cinema. From Ozu's unrivaled masterpiece Tokyo Story to Sono's four-hour modern epic Love Exposure, this initial collection of 11 films is a breakneck journey through this much-admired national cinema. Award-winning actor Jack Rayner went behind the camera for the first time recently for his short film Banya. Set during the Great Famine and starring Will Poulter, the film is an atmospheric and chilling story influenced by Japanese cinematic masters. I'm delighted that Jack now joins me in the iFi podcast to discuss those influences and to go through some of his favourites of Japanese cinema. Jack, welcome to the iFi podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. Jack, how has your lockdown been? Have you taken it as a bit of a timeout or have you been kind of working away steadily? You know what? I've been taking it as a timeout and I'm ready for that timeout to end. <laughs> Definitely very ready for it to end. But. I think, you know, in some ways I've benefited from having time off and not working and being in the industry and just kind of focusing on other things and exploring other things, which has been really good. And to be honest with you, like I did a bit of writing in the first lockdown and uh, at the time of recording, we're currently in the third lockdown, uh, which I don't know about you, but I think this has definitely been the hardest one. Yeah, I did a bit of writing in the first lockdown and then after that, I just found that it takes a lot of mental bandwidth just to deal with getting up and just living the same day every single day with just, you know, there's nothing to do. You can't go anywhere and you can't do anything. And so that's kind of stifled my creativity in certain respects. And in other ways, I've had to kind of give expression to you know creativity through just working on stuff with my hands being out in my garden and doing stuff and you know like having like building projects and things like that uh which i've been kind of focused on so that's really good so you know to all intents and purposes bar a couple of days i've just spent the entire period of the pandemic just plugged into other things which has been great um, I've been asking guests what they've been watching or have they been catching up on something that they've that they missed in the past? Have you been kind of looking at something in particular, exploring new film or TV? Yeah, I've been watching loads of stuff. I think my favourite thing that I've watched in the last year is uh, Twin Peaks. I just binged all of Twin Peaks and I just thought it was some of the most incredible just art that I'd ever seen. Because it is, I mean... To me, it's like the the things that David Lynch does are the purest artistic application of the medium of cinema and film and television, you know? I really think he's just, he's on another level. I loved, I loved the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, the original stuff. I I loved the film, Firewalk With Me. Um, I thought that was one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. And then most recent series from 2007 I thought was brilliant I think a lot of people a lot of people seem to have problems with it and they felt like it I don't know whether they were expecting more of the same or whether they I don't know they didn't like the format or 
something, but I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And maybe it was the fact that I watched it all so closely together gave me a kind of a, a unique appreciation for it and how dynamic it is as a project, you know, over so many years. But that definitely, I think, was the best thing that I've seen in the last year. Yeah, just thinking back, we had the 4K re-release of Mulholland Drive not so long ago, and I'm just thinking back to, to seeing that in, in the cinema, and it's it's unparalleled, that, that experience of seeing that film so large, it's just amazing. What a crazy movie, brilliant. Uh, you know what else? I watched Wild at Heart, actually, which I'd never seen before. I watched that about six months ago, and I thought it was great. I thought it was a perfect, perfect application of Nicolas Cage and William Dafoe, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, it was brilliant. I thought it was beautiful. Um, looking at your short film, Jack Banya, there, there is a huge Japanese influence um, insofar as the title, when, at the very start, is it's translated into Japanese in the opening credits. But I just wanted to row back um, a little bit. And I was just wondering, what was the first Japanese film that really made an impact on you? Have you ever seen uh, Takeshi Kitano's Zatoichi film? That was the first... That was really the first time I sat down to watch a Japanese film and went, God, I'd really love to get into Japanese cinema. Um, and it was actually a friend of mine who is a critic for The Telegraph in the UK, Tim Roby, who came over to spend a weekend with myself and Madeline here. And uh, he, I, I had bought it and I hadn't watched it yet. And he actually suggested we put it on. He was like, oh, that's a great film. You should check it out. You'd really like it. So we watched it that night and I did love it. And he said, you should watch a load of Takeshi Kitano movies because all of his stuff is great. Now, at that point, I had seen Battle Royale, which I thought was brilliant, but I hadn't gotten into Japanese cinema really at that stage. So, you know, we talked a little bit about Takeshi Kitano and I realized he was the guy from Battle Royale. And then I watched Violent Cop, which I loved. I watched Sonatine, which might be my favorite Takeshi Kitano, and I watched Hannah B, Fireworks, a uh, beautiful movie as well. So it was kind of like those sort of hard-boiled late 80s, early 90s Japanese crime films that got me into it. And from there, I went all the way back and started watching Kurosawa and Kobayashi and Ozu and Kaisuke Kinoshida and those kinds of guys. So it was a big leap back to the beginning and a very different type of film to what I'd been exposed to in Japanese cinema. But that was, yeah, that was kind of how it began. You guys have a Takeshi Kitano movie on the program, don't you? For Yeah, Hanabi is one of the films of the program, yeah. What a brilliant movie. And like Takeshi Kitano just... The film features all these beautiful paintings that he does, and you know he's just such a he's so, he's such an interesting guy. Like he has like for you know people of my generation, they'll all remember watching uh, Takeshi's Castle growing up, and that was a game show that Takeshi Kitano started. He was the guy. He's Takeshi, and you know he's a comedian as well. But he became a director. His, his first movie was uh, Violent Cop. That was the first movie that he directed. He, he had been in other things. I, I, I'm sure you've seen um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, the Nagisa Oshima movie. I'm not sure whether that was his first film role or not, but when it came to doing Violent Cop in 1989, I think there was another director attached and that fell apart and Takeshi Kitano came on 
he had come on to star but then basically said look i'll direct the movie and uh i think that started his career as this great kind of director of hard-boiled crime films that all have a very really sensitive kind of human element in all of them really and the really interesting thing about the first volume that that we've just released on I Fight Home is that they're so different. I mean, you have Tokyo Story, you have Funeral Parade of Roses, you have House, you have Tetsuo, The Iron Man, films that couldn't be more different. And I suppose, like, like any national cinema, there is there one single trait that you can identify that is uniquely Japanese, or is it just too broad a cinema to, to look at anything like that? The the unique feature about it is the broadness of it. That's the thing. It's just so diverse. When you when you're talking about a country that puts out movies like, you know, Tokyo Story, Ghost in the Shell, Pale Flower by Masahiro Shinoda, the Lone Wolf and Cub series. You know, those are all coming out of this one place. And like and like you say, House. You know, it's like. These movies are all so vibrant and so there's so much passion in all of them and the diversity of it is just astonishing. So that's really what I think gets me about it. I just think the the level of there's an almost desperate expression going on in Japanese cinema that I just find absolutely intriguing and it, you don't find it in many other places. I think most recently, you're finding it in South Korea, and they're having this incredible renaissance period where they're they're making the kind of stuff that I think is as important to cinema now as, you know, the, the Kobayashis and the Ozus and the Kurosawas uh, were back in the 20th century, you know? Um, I know we're gonna we're gonna dig into the season in more detail. A couple of the films that I know have had an influence on you, and um, the first being Kaneto Shindo's Onibaba, which is routinely named as one of the best Japanese films ever, and um, but has also been referred to as a waking nightmare. Can you tell us a little bit about the story behind Onibaba? Yeah, Onibaba is it's an amazing film, and it's set during the feudal era in Japan, and it's essentially about two women who are living a really rough lifestyle as they live in this huge field massive tall reeds in the field and the majority of the film takes place in the reeds of this field and essentially the older woman is the mother-in-law of the the girl in it and son and husband respectively has gone off to fight in the war and these two women have been kind of left to fend for themselves and so in their desperation they basically murder lost samurai who wander into the field and they take their armor and their possessions and they sell it uh, for money and for food so basically throughout the course of the film you have this other guy who's a vagrant who arrives from the war and he brings the news that the son is dead and that they're on their own from now on and they sort of form an uneasy alliance with this guy basically who stays at the other end of the field in a little hut the way it turns out is that the the daughter-in-law she starts kind of having a sexual relationship with this guy and the mother starts to realize that if the girl goes off with this guy that she's going to be left on her own and she won't be able to survive because she's not going to be able to kill these samurai on her own so in in an act of desperation she assumes this spectral identity basically she you know tells the girl the story of a ghost in the field and she wears this mask and basically i don't want to like give away the end of the movie but she uh she basically tries to 
keep the girl there through trickery. And it's an amazing film. It's really beautiful. It's incredibly shot. But the kind of standout element of the film is how nature is on display in it. All the kinetic energy that's going on in the frame is incredibly unsettling. And in terms of like the composition of the shots in the film and just everything about it, it's just really, really spectacular. So um, Kaneto Shindo was a big influence for Banya, not only with Onibaba, but also with Kuroneko, which is the black cat, which kind of a similar setup in that story. But yeah, beautiful films, like a great kind of Japanese horror director. But I think what he taps into really well is the folk culture of Japanese horror between himself and Kobayashi. And that's what I find really rich in Japanese horror cinema. And that's something that I wish we saw more of in Irish cinema, being able to reach into the roots of our folk culture and our folk history um, and to be able to find the relevance in it today to be able to use those stories to to affect today you know um, you mentioned those those opening scenes and, and the way it's framed and from that that very opening sequence where you have that long grass and you have that kind of that stalking scene it's incredible but also i mean as you mentioned you know that those scenes with the demon those black and white scenes and the way those nighttime scenes are lit Oh, the way that, and the rain that's going on, like, it's unbelievable. It looks like the end of the world, you know? It's really, like, it creates such an, an unbelievably oppressive atmosphere, which is just fascinating to see. So I was hoping for that when we shot Banya, and there really needed to be this feeling of, like, nature being at odds with human survival you know and it needed to feel cold when you watched in the frame it needed to feel cold and it needed to feel violent and i think that was in there i think that was in there we were lucky the weather really turned out for us banya jack you filmed banya in black and white and i'm curious about filming in 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 that way and for anybody not in the know and i, I include myself in that what are the kind of extra considerations when you're shooting in black and white in relation to, you know, light and costume and production design, what kind of needs to feed into that additionally that you may not have to think about for colour, for example? Do you know what? I actually found that the it was the opposite. I found that considering what the concept of the project was, it was easier to shoot in black and white in many ways because I didn't have to think about the application of colour. Because, you know, if I was going to do it... If I was going to do it in color, I would want to be, I would want there to be motifs and things that actually had relevance to what was going on. I, I'm a firm believer in not putting anything in the frame that that doesn't have a reason for being there, and that includes color. So in this particular instance, the world that we were talking about was so stark. You know, it's the famine. There's this constant gnawing dread of death everywhere and you know it, it it is in itself such a black and white story you know the the subject he could die at any moment you know and i think that was really complemented by the use of black and white and so you know ultimately like we didn't we didn't have to worry about how we were going to dress certain things up and i think it, it meant that it was a lot easier on the production designer in many ways to not have to consider what 
sort of tones were going to have to be there and everything. Do you know what I mean? We we just knew that it was going to be the light rather than the color that was going to tell the story, and and it worked out very well. You know, I was really pleased with it. Yeah, no, it's 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 an amazing it's an amazing piece of work, and I, I did. I mean, Onibaba really came back into my head watching it because you do have those kind of, you know, in Onibaba where the two women are sleeping, you have those spotlights falling directly on them. And there's that, uh, there's a little bit of that as well in the barn where, you know, the milk is highlighted, but it's, it's kind of darkened elsewhere. That's something that you, you'll notice if you watch Kobayashi's films. You'll see it in The Human Condition. You'll see it in Koidan. He's not afraid to use light in a very dramatic way even at the cost of it feeling unrealistic. Because ultimately what you're doing and what I'm interested in as a director and as somebody who works in the film industry is like, I I think realism is great and it's beautiful and I like working in that style, but I find myself more drawn creatively and I find that my inner response is often stimulated more through through the use of kind of visual metaphor I, I love dramatic light and i love to see things that feel like they couldn't necessarily exist in the real world but here in what i'm watching they do exist you know that's like david lynch all over it's sitting down and taking what's in your dreams and manifesting that on film so that it looks like it, it looks like it could be re- it could be real and that world building brings us nicely onto someone we've mentioned already, Kobayashi, and his film Kwaidan, which was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Oscar back in 1966. It runs just over three hours, but it actually flies by because it's made up of four different stories, each inspired by the work of Irish author Lafcadio Hearn, who moved to Japan and was very much steeped in that uh, Japanese folklore tradition. Um, he also inspired the story behind Banya. So can you tell us a little bit about Lafcadio Hearn, how you came across him and how uh, his work came to inspire Banya? I, I think I watched Kwaidan before I knew about Lafcadio Hearn. And once I did a bit of research after I saw the film, you know, like I was kind of shocked. I was like, hang on a minute. That film is based on the writings of an Irish guy. So I dug into Lafcadio Hearn and I started to read his work and... I just burned through all of his books and I just thought they were so beautiful and so eloquently written and there is a kind of a dreamlike quality in how he writes and I just was sort of incredulous at how he's not more celebrated in Ireland as such an important liter- literary contributor. I, re- I was reading his work, I was, I was going through his books and there was just one of the stories that he had collected on his travels of, um, you know, it was like a ghost story just from this little village about a woman who turns up to this shop that sells malted syrup in the evenings and she buys one small cup of malted syrup and the shopkeeper is kind of suspicious about the woman and he doesn't really know what the deal is with her and ultimately he follows her when he when she leaves the shop one night and uh is led to a graveyard and he hears the sound of this baby crying and ultimately goes to the grave where he hears the noise and he digs it up and he finds that her living child is there and that she had been providing for the child beyond death and uh it was beautiful just you know again a beautiful metaphor for love and its strength and how it's the one thing that can really conquer death you know and i just uh 
Yeah, I thought it was gorgeous. And so when I read it, it was just one paragraph and it was just like, this is the thing I want to make. You know, it was it was clear as day. I could see it all in my head. The context of the famine was just that uh, Lafcadio Hearn was born in 1851, the year before the famine ended. He grew up in an Ireland that was incredibly superstitious and where people didn't talk about the famine they didn't talk about what they'd done to survive it they didn't write songs about it there were no heroic tales from it it was a black spot in our history and i think that what that led to was this burst of folklore and of kind of ghosts and stuff in irish culture and you know tales of the supernatural basically and that was the stuff that he was really interested in as a kid and he clearly brought that interest with him to Japan, and that's where he recorded all those incredible folk tales. Um, so it was just nice to have an opportunity to, in some small way, close the loop of a century and, um, and be able to make something inspired by his work in Japan at home here in Ireland. And, and as you say, like there's, there's a supernatural element going through Kwaidan the whole way through, through the four films. And he, like you were saying with David Lynch, I mean, it is this world-building idea where in the space of, you know, three hours or kind of four 45-minute sections, he just creates these four completely different immersive worlds. And it's a testament to Kobayashi as a director, you know. I think, I don't know if you've ever read the book A Dream of Resistance by Stephen Prince. It's a biography of Kobayashi and it chronicles his, you know, journey through his career and it's really fascinating. But Kobayashi was in the Kwangtung army and he was sent to Manchuria and uh, he refused to ever be promoted above the rank of private, similar to the main character in, in The Human Condition. And uh, ultimately he spent some years in a POW camp when the war ended. And he just had this, it's, it's sort of amazing how he came out of the experience of the Second World War in a kind of an acknowledgement that what the Japanese had done was wrong and that their involvement in it was misjudged and they had reparations to pay. But part of the journey for him was to find some sort of transfiguration of national identity whereby they could acknowledge the things that had happened but find their kind of pride in being Japanese and find a way to to just sort of exist again and to celebrate who they were, you know, while while obviously keeping sight of, of their responsibility and their culpability for the atrocities that had been committed. And that is something that features in all of his films that's you know the human condition is obviously a nine hour long you know transfiguration story but so too does that exist throughout all the rest of his work you know like you see it in harakiri you see it in kwaidan you see it in samurai rebellion even his smaller movies and you know that like i think that's that's present in most if not all of the segments of kwaidan and yeah, I think that gives him a great that that gives him a, a, the ammunition to be as diverse as he is, you know. Do you have a favorite segment in Quaidan? The one that kind of jumps out at you when you think about it first? 
I love the black hair. Do you know what, man? That's a, a really, really hard question because they're all so beautiful and they're all, they're all triumphs in their own right. One of my favorite moments is the Z-axis pivot in the first one in the black hair when he's in the room and he's, you know, the room is starting to collapse around him and the camera just twists as it's following him. I just think that is an extraordinary shot and not something that many people were doing. The Z-axis pivot is a real, Kobayashi, I, I guess he's one of the first people really to use that stuff and now you see it everywhere. Sure, Michael Bay is using the Z-axis pivot every day. I just, you know, that's that's gorgeous. And I just think that the battle scenes in Hoichi the Earless in the third film are yeah. so beautiful. Just the the production design in it, it blows my mind. It really does. And the tenderness in the second one, just the tenderness in the kind of human story there is just amazing. And I love that about Kobayashi, the fact that he can deal with such difficult material and the sensitivity of it is just absolutely sublime. It, I, there's, there's always a great hopefulness, I find, in Kobayashi's work. Even when everybody dies, you know, even when like it's not a happy <laughs> ending. There's, there's a hopefulness for humanity in everything that he did. And I just find that important in this day and age. I love the woman of the snow, you know, the, the kind of the drenched out colours, but the str- the strong white and then in the scenes with the forest where it's it's like bleached out in red. And then, of course, you have that sky that's like literally it's a it's a painted sky. It's just it's unreal. And he bankrupted the studio by shooting that whole thing on a soundstage with painted backgrounds, you know, <laughs> they went mental at him. And, you know, the other thing, just going back to the use of really obscure and dramatic lighting. That one that you're talking about, the woman in the snow. One of the really beautiful things in that segment is when um, when she reveals herself as as the spirit. He turns and he looks at her and there's this kind of tungsten light on her. And she tells him who she is and the light changes and it goes cold on his face. And it goes cold on her face. And whatever way they did her makeup... When they change from the tungsten light to the cold light, she becomes the character. She becomes the spirit. You can see the transformation happen just through the change of light in shot. And, I mean, the, that is just ingenuity. Unbelievable. What a great way to do it. Um, Jack, you mentioned um, that you'd been uh, picking up some Blu-rays recently. What else have you been watching? Empire of Passion was another influence on Banya in a big way. And it was more so the tone of that film, really, which I just thought was amazing. Nagisa Ashima, I think he's a bit more nihilistic, really. But he's obviously also an incredibly skilled director. And I loved Empire of Passion when I watched it because of... I mean, I thought it was properly spooky. Like the husband when he reappears like it just it scared the pants off me it actually brought me back i i don't know about you but when i was a kid i was terrified by darby o'gill and the little people (laughs) and when the banshee turned up in that movie it really freaked me out because it was so ethereal and it was just like she kind of appeared out of nowhere and it just gave me a mad sense of dread as a kid and like it's not really comparable it's done obviously a million times better in empires of passion but there was something of that quality 
in Empire of Passion where when the dead husband turned up, it just gave me chills. And for like people who haven't seen Empire of Passion, it's set at the end of the 19th century, etc. And the Meiji era when uh, Japan was ending its policy of isolationism, opening its borders, starting trade with other countries. And it began rapidly westernizing. So the film's set during that era and it's about a woman and a man who are having an extramarital relationship and uh, her husband is a rickshaw driver and you know his sights aren't aimed very high and you know he just comes home in the evening and he kind of expects his dinner and to sit down by the fire and for to pour his sake for him to drink and he's kind of content with that life but that's not what she wants and so she's having this relationship with this guy who's a He's a soldier in the army and they resolve that they're going to have to kill her husband in order that they can be together. And the way they're going to do it is they're going to kill him and then they're going to have to spend a certain amount of time where they don't really have anything to do with each other so they won't be suspected of having murdered him. Um, so they're just going to like make him disappear. Uh, so they do it, but ultimately the husband starts to come back as this spectral character and sort of uh, haunt the wife. And it's her conscience, really. Um, but what's really interesting about it is that he's not a vengeful ghost. He's not an onryo, as they call them in Japan. He's quite the opposite, really. It's it's There's a beautiful scene in it where she's gone to buy a bottle of sake and uh, the husband... The ghost of the husband is outside of the shop where she buys the sake with his rickshaw. And he turns around to her and he says, get on, I'll give you a ride home. And she's terrified, but she gets on. And he starts to run with the rickshaw. And as he's going, he starts to say, he's he's just sad. And he starts to say how he's confused and how he can't find the way home anymore. And he doesn't know where to go. And they find themselves lost in this mist. And she gets really spooked by the whole thing. And you know, it goes on from there, but it was just like, just this beautiful way of portraying how this relationship died and how this guy is just lost and just, you know, he's not angry and he's not there going, you killed me, you know, I'm, I'm here for revenge. It's just, uh, he's just sad and he's confused and he doesn't know where he is. And I just thought that was really, really interesting and, and very beautifully done. He's the guy we were talking about, uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence at the beginning, which is a World War II film with David Bowie as the lead. Ryuichi Sakamoto is in it. And I, I want to talk about Ryuichi Sakamoto for a minute because he's a musician. He's a composer. He's scored many, many Japanese films. He scored Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. For those of you who are into your obscure Japanese synth pop, uh, you might <laughs> know him from <laughs> being uh, uh, one of the guys in the band Yellow Magic Orchestra, which is definitely worth a listen to if you're into that stuff. I love Yellow Magic Orchestra. Jack, you'd also mentioned um, Vengeance is Mine, which is uh, a 1979 film uh, from Shohei Imamura. Tell us about that one. It's kind of got a real sort of film noir vibe off it, but it's about a Japanese serial killer, one of the few, and he essentially just traveled around Japan for a couple of years, women who he became involved with, and he killed. He, he was just killing people who were helping him all the time, which is kind of a, it's a weird one. Um, but it's, it's, a very br- it's a very brutal film, but there's fascinating father-son dynamic that goes on in the story, and uh, it culminates in a great scene 
at the end of the movie in the jail when the lead character is facing doing life in prison or whatever um or i don't know whether i can't remember whether he was executed or not um but a great movie and i think it's up there with the the best of japanese noir movies like pale flower the masahiro shinoda movie seijun suzuki branded to kill those kinds of things we can't i, I can't track down and um, vengeance is mine on streaming just at the moment so we might have to track that down on, on dvd or blu-ray but empire of passion um is certainly available to stream from amazon and apple tv jack we have um in in, in this f- first kind of tranche of the season we have very recognizable films um tokyo story and seven samurai and as you mentioned house is there as well if i was to put you on the spot and um, for someone who's completely new to japanese cinema if they were if you're to give them a, a way in to japanese cinema to, to stoke their passion where would you start what would be your starting point it depends on the person really because if you're into if you want to watch some really mad and obscure horror then house and tetsuo the iron man are two of the most insane films you could ever watch they're absolutely bananas um so if that's the kind of thing you're into, if you're into stuff that's like weird, like gonzo horror kind of stuff, I would <laughs> I would check those out. Uh, House is great. I can't remember the name of the guy who directed, but I but I know he was a he was an ads director, and so it's it's so weird. It's like it's like a feature film that's made out of just like a load of ads and like really really interesting uh but it's just crazy i think when did i watch it two or three years ago probably and like it's really like it's very humorous because it's so over the top and so mental but uh there's there's nothing really like it i've never seen a film like house before and i think it's because of the director coming from the world of of advertisements it's just it's it's strange it, it kind of has to be seen to be understood really um but i would highly recommend it tetsuo the iron man ben wheatley got me into those movies <clears throat> he sent me a text one day about tetsuo 2 body hammer which if i remember is kind of like it's sort of like the evil dead two to the evil dead kind of thing isn't it it's like they're they're kind of the same film in many ways so yeah i remember sticking on body hammer and just being like what am i watching it has (laughs) has that like insane quality of like 90s like shot on video and just like really experimental but like off the wall stuff so again for anybody who's into horror tetsuo Tetsuo 2, those movies are great. I watched them. Um, I watched Tetsuo again last weekend, and at, like it's only seventy odd minutes, but by the end of it, I felt like I drunk ten cups of coffee or had been hit by a car. It was. It's just a relentless. And the, you know the other one that's great in that whole world of really kind of like pulpy Japanese horror movies, The Ballad of Ricky O. It's a movie about a guy in a prison, like, and it's kind of a martial arts movie, but kind of just like insane gory horror and uh it has some of the most insane kills in any movie i've ever seen (laughs) like this guy like punches a dude up under the jaw and pulls his brain out kind of thing you know what i mean like mental so that's that's in the world of tetsuo um Um, I was actually going to ask you that question as well, because for a long time, and I suppose Korean cinema had this reputation as well, kind of in the noughties, of this very extreme 
body horror films. And I just wonder, is that has that reputation been a little bit unfair to that cinema across the world where like films like Battle Royale are the films that have made across made it across here where other types of films haven't had the same exposure the same audience that maybe they've deserved yeah that's an interesting question I do think that there has definitely been I think a lot of what gets people into Japanese or South Korean cinema is a level of intrigue about seeing really wild shit, you know? Like, oh, I saw that movie, old boy, yeah, your man eats an octopus alive in it. Things like that. And, like, I get it, but if you're watching old boy because you want to see a guy eat an octopus live, you're missing the point of the movie. Do you know what I mean? So... I won't begrudge people sitting down to watch Japanese and South Korean cinema because they think it's weird because ultimately it's those people who you're hoping are going to find a deeper understanding and appreciation of the culture of that cinema in order to expand their palate for it. Do you know what I mean? So cool. If that's how you're going to get into it, if you're going to get in by watching Tetsuo, you're going to get in by watching you know, on the South Korean stuff, old boy or whatever, you know, fair enough. I think I think that's fine. But I do think that there's certainly a, an understanding among Japanese and South Korean filmmakers that they will reach a broader audience if they take a little bit of that quality into their films, you know, like... Look, if we do a bit of David Cronenberg on this, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, we'll get more people watching it. And that's definitely the case. And I think it's great. You know, I love David Cronenberg. I love body horror. And I love seeing it in Japanese and South Korean cinema. So I have no problems with it. You're on board. Um, we're going to circle back because I know that we've, we've, we've been talking about uh, Banya, um, which really does need to be seen on the big screen. Hopefully, we'll, we'll get to see it soon enough, Jack. Fingers crossed, that'd be great. I'm not entirely sure because of the pandemic when it's going to be, but um, I do know that Sky will be broadcasting it on Sky Arts in the near future at some point. I know they had it on St. Patrick's Day last year, so we'll see. We'll keep an eye out for that. And we will see you very shortly in Cherry, um, which is the new film from the Russo brothers uh, starring Tom Holland. Tell us a little bit about that one. Cherry is based on a true story kind of about the opioid crisis that's going on in the states i had a great experience on it it was like it was a i was only out in cleveland for about four weeks on it and you know i'm I'm kind of in the last half or third of the movie i guess but it's i think it's a great film i think tom does a fantastic job in the role and it's great for him in terms of you know it's it's a very much an adult film you know um and he's brilliant in it and he's very funny in it you know his performance is rooted in a a very serious kind of context and um for me it was a great opportunity to do something that was kind of very blackly humorous which i love to do and i think it's going to be really good i haven't seen it yet myself i have a couple of friends who've seen screeners and said they really enjoyed it but i i loved working with joe and anthony russo thought they were such cool guys and they were just very collaborative and very engaging and very generous so great experience overall and i have high hopes for the movie 
But I think um, to your hyphenate, we can add uh, actor, writer, director, and leading Japanese cinema expert. As I mentioned at the top of the program, the first volume of the iFi's Japanese story season is now available to rent on iFi at home, uh, with volume two coming at the beginning of March. Visit ifihome.ie for more details. Jack Rayner, thanks so much for your time. Thanks a million, man. Really appreciate it. That's all from this week's iFi podcast. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.